Welcome to the Arlington Street Church Podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. The old saying goes that only two things in life are certain, death and taxes. And I'm not going to talk about taxes today. So that leaves us with death. For some of us, this may even be a less painful topic than taxes. Death comes in lots of ways. Sudden, slow, premature, tragic, even welcome. Like our birth, the place, time, and manner of our death is something we cannot control or predict. Something so important and completely random rather like a meteorite. We can die as a result of an illness, hooked up to tubes in a hospital bed, waiting impatiently for the end. Or we can be suddenly blown out of the sky without a second's notice, falling five miles to earth and landing in the middle of a sunflower field in a Ukrainian village. French philosopher Michel de Montaigne a connoisseur of death's intricacies, put it well. Where death waits for us is uncertain. Let us look for him everywhere. Another more folksy philosopher, fictional detective Charlie Chan, described death as the one appointment we all must keep and for which no time is set. Death can take us completely by surprise. Let me tell you about one such case. One evening nearly 20 years ago, my husband and I had settled into our seats at the Metropolitan Opera. We had come to see a new production of unusual opera, The Macropolis Case, by Czech composer Leos Janacek. The first scene takes place in a lawyer's office with a steep wall of filing cabinets. In the small role of Vitek, the lawyer's clerk, Tenor, Richard Versal sang the opera's first words. Versal was singing as he climbed a ladder to get to one of the filing drawers. One of his first, very first notes is a high B, not easy to sing under any circumstances, let alone clinging to a vertical ladder 15 feet above the stage. As he sang, we read the translation of the words he was singing on the little screen in the back of the seats in front of us. You can only live so long. You can only live so long. But suddenly, he stopped singing and fell 15 feet backwards from the ladder, landing with a sickening thud on the stage. Many of us thought it might be just part of the show. After all, this was the opening performance of the Met's premier production of an offbeat modern opera. In these days, when the director reigns on the operatic stage, you never know what to expect. But Versal just stayed on his back, absolutely still, without a singular muscular reflex. And our confusion turned to horror. Conductor David Robertson 
a young American making a Met debut that was certainly turning out to be more remarkable than he probably wished, stopped the orchestra. He called out in a stunned voice plainly audible to the audience, Richard, are you all right? No answer. Richard, are you all right? He repeated louder. Still, no answer. Suddenly the curtain came down. Robertson bravely announced a 20-minute pause, and we all knew that Richard Versall's fall was definitely not part of the show. Real life in the dark form of death had intruded into this holiest shrine of art. Of course, many operas feature scenes of dying, from tuberculosis, stabbing, poisoned violets even, gunshots, the guillotine, but those are fake deaths. This was the real thing. In the opera, the lawyer's clerk, Vitek, sets up the appearance of Elena Macropolis, a femme fatale, the soprano star of the show. Macropolis is a man-killing opera diva who's been alive for 337 years. Thanks to an elixir invented by her father, an alchemist in mid-16th century Prague. But as the opera opens, her time is now running out. She needs another dose. So she's come in search of the formula. Vitek's boss, a lawyer, can help her. He's handling a court case concerning the property of one of the numerous lovers Alina has consumed over the last three centuries. Somewhere in the lover's papers is a magic formula that will give her another 300 years of life. When he sings those words, you can only live so long, Vitek is referring to the original parties to the lawsuit and that they have to die and then they'll be able to get the formula. But the composer Janacek also intended them to foreshadow the decision Macropolis will make at the opera's end. She realizes that to live forever is to be forever unhappy. So she chooses to die rather than to take another dose of the elixir. She chooses to die rather than to renew her life. None of the opera, opera's other characters want the elixir either. They have seen its evil consequences in the nasty life of Alina Macropolis. At the opera's end, Vitek's own daughter burns the formula so that it can never be used again. You can only live so long. The opera's message is clear. Death is a part of life. In fact, we are dying from the moment we are born. Life has value only because of death. Both Janacek and Karel Chapek, the visionary author of the play on which the opera was based, rejected the idea of artificially prolonging life by scientific means, a concept very popular in the 1920s when the play and the opera were written. You can only live so long. It was a shocking personal tragedy for Richard Versall's family and friends that he died of an apparent heart attack on the Met stage. But there was also something undeniably beautiful and symbolic about the scene. One can even envy Richard Versall for dying the way he did. At the reasonable age of 63, suddenly, without suffering, and while doing what he loved, singing on stage and he was spared the wasting away of mind and body that can be the most scary thing about growing old. 
Once again, Montaigne addressed this issue in his essay, which I recommend to you, On the Length of Life. What madness it is to expect to die of that failing of our powers brought on by extreme old age, and to make that the target of our life to reach, when it is the least usual, the rarest kind of death. Dying of old age is a rare death, unique and out of the normal order, and therefore less natural than the others. Actress Candace Bergen, who has struggled with numerous serious illnesses in recent years, has put it more simply. It is a privilege to grow old. Those of us who survived the AIDS epidemic when we saw scores of our friends die in the prime of life must remember what she means. As we age, we confront death more often. Our parents die, our aunts and uncles, our siblings, our colleagues, and former classmates. Each year in the alumni bulletin, we recognize the names of more of our peers in the recently deceased column. So how do we prepare ourselves for the unknown time of our own death? And how do we prepare others? It's no secret that in American culture, aging and death are regarded with terror, loathing, and anxiety. Industries employing millions of people feed upon this fear. We are bombarded with messages that growing old is somehow shameful and to be avoided at all costs. And even when death comes, we can attempt to pretend it hasn't happened. Perhaps you read about the new trend in the funeral business, to pose the dead body for the wake, not in a casket, but sitting up in a happy, lifelike pose, like sipping a martini. As Unitarian Universalists, we believe that human life is interconnected with the life of the universe, with nature and its regular cycles of springtime birth and winter death. We don't really believe that heaven is a lovely resort island in the sky, sort of like an endless all-you-can-eat Caribbean cruise, accessible only to those who have booked a cabin by behaving nicely in life. That brings to mind the witticism of actor John Barrymore, who quipped, the good die young because they see it's no use living if you gotta be good. <laughs> Our UU view is more in tune with Buddhist concepts, which emphasize death as a kind of return to an initial state of being, part of an unending cycle in the pursuit of a more calm fulfillment and peace. Many scholars and writers who have contemplated death agree that death is actually hardest for those left behind. In her seminal work on death and dying, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her team interviewed numerous terminally ill patients about how they would like to be treated by doctors, hospital staff, and family members. Most of them said that what was most difficult was that they couldn't share their real feelings, that they were surrounded by denial and difficult relatives and hospital routine that left them feeling isolated and alienated. They felt a lack of empathy for their situation. More than 80 years before the publication of Kubler-Ross's book, Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy made the same point in his story, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Ivan Ilyich is a successful lawyer who has cancer. As his illness progresses, he becomes increasingly annoyed with his family and doctors. 
What tormented Ivan Ilyich most was the deception, the lie, which for some reason they all accepted that he wasn't dying but was simply ill and that he only need keep quiet and undergo a treatment and then something very good would result. Those lies, lies enacted over him on the eve of his death and destined to degrade this awful solemn act to the level of their visitings, their curtains, their sturgeon for dinner were a terrible agony for Ivan Ilyich. His only source of comfort comes from the simple peasant who nurses him and displays genuine empathy. Tolstoy and Kubler-Ross agree that what most occupies terminally ill patients in their final days is the process of looking back and wondering if they have lived a good life. What if my whole life has really been wrong? Ivan Ilyich now asks himself with a kind of terror. Since we cannot know when death will come for us, we must, as the Boy Scout slogan goes, always be prepared. The best way we can prepare for death is to make the most use of our life. Then we will be ready when it happens, whether on stage at the opera or in the sky over Ukraine. Some people do more with 20 years than others do with 100. In the end, it's what we've done for others that remains after we die. Our body is gone, but their memories of us remain. That is our true afterlife. Not a gravestone, not an obituary, not money, not a curriculum vitae. Dear friends, let me turn again to Montaigne for some parting words. Wherever your life ends, it is all there. The utility of living consists not in the length of days, but in the use of time. A man may have lived long and yet lived but little. Make use of time while it's present with you. It depends upon your will and not upon the number of days to have a sufficient length of life. And yes, remember Richard Versal's prophetic last words. You only live so long. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a donation by checking the mail or through our website.